Bibles to the book of Revelation. Again, Revelation 21 this morning. We will be in verses 9 through 14 today. Continuing our verse-by-verse look at this wonderful book of the Bible that tells us so much about uh, future things, unlike what we uh, talked about this morning in our uh, Sunday school time where a lot of scholars will tell us that this book isn't describing the future when, in fact, an obvious plain reading of it tells us that this is speaking of future events. And we really get to the very heart of God's program for the world in this book of Revelation, and nowhere is that more clear than in our passage this morning where we see uh, exactly who God's chosen people are uh, throughout eternity. God has a, a plan and a program for his creation, and it revolves around people. And he has a, has a method whereby people can be assured of, extent, of uh, existing in eternity with him and in fact, it's kind of a two-step program or a, a, it's a very multifaceted plan. But there are two main vehicles through which God has through history and will continue to, in history, uh, bring the truth of salvation to the world. And we see that displayed here in these verses in Revelation chapter 21, God's chosen people. The fact of the matter is that God's people are made up of two distinct groups. Uh, It doesn't mean they have a different method of salvation or there was once in the past a different way to be saved than there is today. Same path, two uh, different vehicles that God has been very interested in or God has been using to bring people to salvation through faith in him. And to give it away, it's the nation of Israel and the church. And that's why the nation of Israel and the church have a prominent role in the new Jerusalem that is to come. And we'll look at some of that today. Getting down to the end of our look at the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. uh, John was instructed by by the Holy Spirit to write this book down, and we're going to see that taking place again, this process that, that John went through to receive these words and why he wrote them down. We'll look at that again today. He was to write things which he had seen, the risen Christ, a description of of the one who is coming again, and uh, the authority behind this book. He was to write the things which you have seen, that's chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the various churches that were in existence in that time. He's not in those letters, he is not laying out a timeline of history, rather he is writing to churches like this one that we are members of. Uh, in the first century, telling them how to correct certain things, things they're doing right, things they aren't doing right, things that that need to be fixed so that they can be pleasing to the Lord. And therefore, 
Those letters have great interest to us because we may find ourselves acting like Ephesians from time to time, or we may find ourselves acting like Laodiceans from time to time, and we need to correct that. Then John was told to write the things which will take place after these things. That's the main part of the book, of course, as we have seen. And we've made it all the way through uh, the scene in heaven, the tribulation period, the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and now we're getting this view of our eternal home, if you will, in chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. This place, physical, literal place, where we will spend eternity with the Lord. So the book of the the book of Revelation, in spite of what skeptics will tell us, very clearly lays out a timeline for us for the future. That's why it uses this kind of sequential language that we see over and over here in these concluding chapters. And we have seen throughout words like then and and then, next, this took place, next, this will take place, this kind of language that clearly is setting out a sequence of events for us. Uh, and that is the rapture of the church to be taken back to the Father's house, uh, not to meet the Lord in the air and then come back to the earth. Jesus clearly tells us he's taking us back to the Father's house. The only time that can happen is before this tribulation period begins. Seven years of tribulation, that's chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation. Then Christ comes again, Revelation 19, 11. He comes again to the earth, establishes his kingdom on the earth for 1,000 years. And then there is the great white throne judgment of all of the unbelievers of all time are judged according to their works, and they are cast into the lake of fire at the end of the thousand-year period. They're judged according to their works because they have not believed in Christ. And then the eternal state can begin with the new heavens and the new earth that we're reading about in Revelation 21 and 22. Last time, we saw that very clearly there are two destinies available for people. Uh, and this is a fact that will be emphasized again later in Revelation 22 and has been emphasized throughout this book of Revelation. You, you have a choice as to which destiny you will end up in. The people in the tribulation period will have a choice of whether or not they're going to take the mark of the beast, worship the Antichrist, uh, not believe in God, but instead believe in the Antichrist, and they have a destiny that is laid out very clearly for them, and it, it is the lake of fire, according to the book of Revelation. People will have a choice to reject that, and instead believe in God. They have Revelation 21 and 22 as their destiny, eternity, with God, in, in eternal conscious bliss with God, literally dwelling with him. John was instructed to write these words because they're faithful and true. 
in Revelation 21 uh, and verse 5. He is to write about this free offer of salvation that is available to people. Very clearly stated there that this is that that this uh, water of life is without cost to you as an individual. It's without cost to you because eternal God the Son paid the eternal cost. The eternal price was paid for in his shed blood. So now it costs nothing to you. It's a gift, a gracious gift that is offered to you. You receive it by way of faith, not by way of works. And if you do not receive that free gift of salvation by way of faith in Christ, you face a fiery end as described in Revelation 21 and verse 8. And we talked about this uh, verse 8 being a vice list. There are several of them in, that's the technical term for these kinds of uh, passages, these kinds of verses. It doesn't mean that this is every sin. Oh, this is the unpardonable sin, uh, or these are the unpardonable sins. Notice that first one there in verse 8. Didn't really emphasize this last time like I wanted to. Uh, The cowardly. That's the first sin that is mentioned there. Being cowardly, not being uh, uh, sexually impure or being a homosexual or a transgender or something like this. Uh, Whatever you may think is the worst possible sin. Uh, those aren't, they're mentioned, immoral persons, we saw that uh, last time. But coward, the cowardly and unbelieving are the first ones mentioned there who face this uh, fiery end. These people, again, are not uh, headed to the lake of fire and the second death because they committed these sins because they're cowardly, uh, because uh, they're abominable and murderers and these kinds of things. They're headed there because they refuse to believe. Uh, and that unbelieving is, is not necessarily pointing out that they didn't believe. It's more the idea of being unfaithful in their life is, is the point of that. Uh, The fact of the matter is that they are judged according to these sins because they have not believed. When we believe, we're forgiven of those sins. We're given a new nature. God looks at us as if we have the righteousness of Christ. That's the transferred righteousness of Christ that we receive at the moment we trust in him. God sees us that way. If if we don't have that, he sees our works. And uh, our works are going, if we can do good works, they're overshadowed by these sins. And this isn't every sin, of course. The the vice lists in the Bible have different sins that are mentioned. Uh, Needless to say, this isn't every sin. These are just the ones that God brought to the mind of, of John here as he is writing this. But Nevertheless, these people face the second death, the first death, physical death, second death, eternal death, eternal separation from God. Death does not mean ceasing to exist. It simply means separation. When we physically die, our spirit is separated 
from our physical bodies and, and our, our physical bodies lose their, the thing that gives us life, our spirit. That's the separation. We don't cease to exist. Our physical body doesn't just poof when we die, disappear and cease to exist. Obviously, it's still there. Our spirit is the same. It doesn't cease to exist. It is separated from the body, and that is what is death. The second death is an eternal separation of our of unbelievers' spirits from the God of the universe. And that is what unbelievers face. We as believers only face a physical death. Praise the Lord for that. That's as bad as it gets for us. Uh, physical death. The promise of the scriptures is that when we do face a physical death, our spirit is absent from the body, it will be present with the Lord. And according to Revelation 21 and 22, it will be present with the Lord forever. And that brings us to today in the next uh, kind of paragraph that we have here. It may not be divided that way in your Bibles, but that's the way it was originally, uh, that verses 9 through 14 are a paragraph that is beginning to describe this new Jerusalem that is coming down out of heaven. We'll see today the glory, the gates, and the gemstones. If we uh, make it that far, notice again Revelation 21 and verse 9, it says, then, again, sequential language, after this beginning part, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had the great, a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So notice first this great glory that is seen as the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven, verses 9 through the first part of verse 11 there. I won't take the time to read that again, but notice that it is one of the seven angels. One of the seven angels that uh, is mentioned there who had the seven bowls uh, full of the seven last plagues that were poured out upon the earth. So which one is it? I don't know. It's one of the seven. It might be the first, it might be the last, uh, it might be the fifth one. We're not sure. It just says one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues. There is this idea of repetition that we that I've 
kind of been emphasizing over the past few weeks that some of these concepts are repeated over and over, like the lake of fire, for example, a concept that is repeated over and over throughout this section of the Bible. God repeats things that he wants us to understand, that he wants us to know. God repeats things that he wants us to know. So don't build your doctrine, uh, your, your most important foundational doctrine on one verse of the Bible, or one obscure passage of the Bible shouldn't uh, be the basis for everything that we believe. And when God is repeating things like a place of eternal conscious punishment, <laughs> the lake of fire, we should not disappoint it. I could have shown you another article from uh, Dr. Ehrman this morning, Dr. Bart Ehrman. We spent a lot of time studying him or looking at some of the, his writings, professor of New Testament at North Carolina, University of North Carolina. He wrote another article telling us, you foolish Christians, why in the world do you believe in a literal heaven and a literal hell? The Bible doesn't say that, you dummies. Listen to me. I have a doctorate in the Bible, and I know everything, and it doesn't say that there is a hell. Have you ever read the Bible? It mentions it very uh, several times. Uh, for example, Revelation 20 and verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. I think people are going to be judged. There's another takeaway. We are accountable to God. Verse 14 of Revelation 20, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here again in uh, verse 8 of Revelation 21, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is a place that is called, referred to as the lake of fire, and it is the destiny of all people who refuse to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of of their sins, sins. There is also a destiny that we refer to as heaven, where if we trust in Christ, we have the hope and promise that we will be present with the Lord when we die. And when he comes again, we will uh, come again with him to the earth. He will establish his kingdom. We will rule and reign with Christ upon the earth for a thousand years, as is repeatedly stated in Revelation chapter 20, six times, it repeats the idea that we will live with Christ for 1,000 years upon the earth. And then we will dwell with him in the new heaven and the new earth for eternity. God repeats things that he wants us to believe in, wants to be emphasized. Here's another one. God is going to judge the world. 
And he's going to pour out his wrath upon the world. In case you forgot about the judgments uh, from Revelation chapter 6 through 19 that we spent literally a year, I think pretty close to literally a year studying Revelation 6 through 19 was all about God's wrath being poured out upon the earth. In case you forgot about that, Revelation 21.9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. If you'll remember, the seven bowls, they're the last judgments that were poured out upon the earth. There, there is a, an increasing uh, level of wrath being poured out in these judgments, you know, the first seal, it seems oh, it's not so bad, but, you know, a guy coming and kind of conquering the world without uh, warfare. We saw the first seal. That doesn't seem so bad. And, but then war breaks out and then famine and then economic discrepancies. And then things start happening in the sun, moon and the stars and, and these kinds of things. There's martyrdom. And then the trumpet judgments happen, which are, which are even more uh, emphatic, emphatically obvious that they are judgments coming from the Lord. And then finally, you'll remember the seven bold judgments that culminate with Christ coming again to the earth. This and angels, uh, they're not the ones bringing the wrath. They're just the vehicle by which God pours out the wrath using these bowls. To are they literal bowls? P- probably that's the judgment is being poured out on. I I wouldn't take my last stand on that, but uh, nevertheless they are called bowls or vials where the judgment is being poured out. Make no mistake, all of the judgment and wrath is coming from God. He just uses, in the case of the bold judgments, the angels as the vehicle uh, to do it. And notice also that in this, there, there are, he says, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last, uh, the seven last plagues that came upon the earth. There's a sequence here. Begins with the first seal, ends with the seventh bowl. This, then this, then this, then this, then this, then this, all the way to the end of the sequence. There is a sequence of events. That's very clear from the book of Revelation that there is a coming sequence of events in the future that are going to play out. And so we ought to uh, we ought to understand that. Notice that he, that this angel comes to John and says, "Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb." There's there's no figurative language here. Uh, it's it's not a as a bride or like the wife or this kind of thing. This is uh, there is some uh, figurative language, but it's not. This is the thing. This is the bride, the wife of the lamb that is being described here. And the bride, of course, is the new Jerusalem. Yes, there is similar language that is used to describe the church. There's similar language to describe God's uh, relationship with the nation of Israel. And here, this uh, 
kind of figurative idea is being all brought together for us in this description of the new Jerusalem that we're going to see is a description of the place where the people of God will dwell. All those who have believed in God will dwell in this particular place for eternity, and it is the new Jerusalem. And so uh, here, the angel makes the point-blank statement that the bride, the wife of the lamb, using two different terms there, bride and wife, is the new Jerusalem. Try not to get too wrapped up in Israel as the wife and the church as the bride and, and then start to make these come to these conclusions that can get sort of strange. Uh, here, very clear. The bride and the wife is the same entity and it is the new Jerusalem and it is the place where believers will dwell with God forever. Notice the process by which uh, John is receiving this revelation in verse 10. It says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city. This is the the very process. John isn't undergoing here some sort of... uh, you know, ecstatic experience where he's going to start speaking in tongues and healing people or whatever. If you want some good entertainment on a Sunday night, uh, Suzanne and I from time to time will watch these crazy uh, church services with the people speaking in tongues and healing people and all. It's can It can be rather humorous. It's kind of sad. Uh, it's not even kind of sad. It's very sad that the Bible is so misunderstood that it's applied in this way that is completely devoid of of the truth and meaning. So it's not, uh, in the end, it's not really all that funny. But nevertheless, that is not what is happening to John here. He's not having some kind of Pentecostal uh, getting carried away in the spirit experience. No, This is the process of the inspiration of uh, the scriptures. This is what is happening to John here. The same he mentioned the same thing back in the beginning of the book of Revelation. If you'll remember that he says John says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He was John was familiar with this process. He had already written the Gospel of. John. He, he's written, uh, most scholars believe this is the last book that John wrote. So he's written three letters to churches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's familiar with this process and, that, and he's telling us he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he writes this. And he reminds us again here towards the end of the book of Revelation that he's carried away in the Spirit to see this Uh, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And again, we use these, I use these verses kind of often here to describe the, the inspiration of the word, but we use them to remind ourselves of the inspiration of the word. (laughs) Second Peter one, 
20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. John is saying here he was moved by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this. Paul puts it this way in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, or the, technically the, the word means God breathed. God spoke these words, and they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that is what is uh, happening here to John. John is, uh, has apostolic authority uh, to be able to write these things. He was an apostle of John, not, not an apostle in the way that word is sort of flippantly used today as uh, someone who gets elected to the position of apostle in a church. There's no such thing as an apostle today. You had to have seen the risen Lord be taught by him. John fits that bill. That's what the gospel of John describes. He was specifically chosen by Christ to be his apostle, to be his messenger. And so therefore he is, uh, he is qualified to write scripture. There are a lot of misconceptions about how the Bible came into existence and that sort of thing. Uh, he isn't, in this case, well, he isn't necessarily being dictated to. Some places in Revelation, he is dictated word for word, essentially, thus says the Lord. Those sorts of passages have been dictated many times to uh, the writer of Scripture. Not all of the Bible is, is like that. However, most times it's not. You see the writer's style coming through. John writes in a way that's very different than Paul or Peter or Matthew, that it's it's very clear that they're written by uh, different people. Another error that uh, that you may see is that the Bible uh, it's not the word of God until it's properly understood and applied. Uh, and it's just a word on a page until you properly apply it, and that that is completely false and, and pretty dangerous <laughs> viewpoint to take. Uh, it is God's word, whether we recognize it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we understand it or not, it is, it is God's word. And here John is telling us that he's carried away in the spirit to see this holy city coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God. Again, uh, we mentioned this before, it's coming out of the third heaven. The third heaven was not destroyed when uh, earlier in Revelation, when we saw Revelation 20 and verse 11, we saw after the kingdom, this, the heavens that we see where the stars are and the birds and airplanes fly, those will be destroyed. This earth will be destroyed, and then a new heaven and a new earth will come into existence. That's described in verse 11 of Revelation 20, 
uh, when we see the great white throne and him who sat on it, who is God the Father, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. This is uh, this holy city, Jerusalem, is coming down out of the third heaven where God dwells right now. That is not going to be destroyed. And it is the very dwelling place of God, and that is why it has this incredible glory that John describes here, having the glory of God in verse 11. Jesus Christ is uh, has the very glory of God because he is God in human flesh. First Timothy 6 verse 15 says, uh, speaking of the end, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and, and only sovereign the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Did you see the coronation uh, yesterday? I didn't see it, heard about it. Uh, obviously, it's everywhere. Uh, the, and you notice that he very much, the King of England, very much takes on the attributes of God himself and in fact uh, demands, I, I don't know that they demand it the same way today that they used to back, back in the day when kings could have your head cut off. Uh, but nevertheless, there was a statement that every British person was supposed to essentially pledge their allegiance to King Charles and uh, kind of recognize him as God. May he live forever. And these kinds of this kind of statement, uh, shocking. Speaking of Christ, Paul says, "He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords." Lord of Lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God himself has this glory. Jesus revealed a a very small fraction, very small portion of it on the Mount of Transfiguration when the, the three apostles who were there with him saw him briefly veiled, if you will, in his glory. And that was enough to to get their attention. Then in the New Jerusalem, we will see it on full display, who uh, the, the city of God that dwells in unapproachable light, according to uh, 1 Timothy chapter Six. So this new city will have great glory. And it also has uh, gates that you're not supposed to see that yet. You're supposed to see this. <laughs> Revelation 21, verse 11, the second part of the verse says, Her brilliance was like a very costly stone and a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and the gate and at the gates 12 angels and names were written on them which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel there were 3 gates on the east 3 on the north 3 on the south and 3 on the west This place is God's dwelling place that's why it has this incredible uh brilliance uh the term for brilliance is foster, or uh, it's very similar to foster. I never really put that together, but that, that term 
means brilliance or radiance like a star, a, a great luminary. And notice that it says there in the second uh, the part of verse 11, her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. That's the figurative language. It's trying to put it into something that we will understand as people. Uh, I remember uh, getting engaged to Suzanne and her diamond ring. We were sitting around a fire somewhere at night and it was shining and you know we were all like puppy dogs and that kind of thing and it was so great and that's kind of the, the brilliance. You know, that pales in comparison to the brilliance that's going to be described here or is being described here, but he puts it into language that we understand. It's, it's shiny like a diamond or like this crystal clear jasper so that, we can, so that we can understand what is being described there. And it's also, uh, this is the same place that John was taken to when, uh, in chapter 4. Before the tribulation begins, you'll remember, John was caught up to heaven, coincidentally enough, after he wrote the letters to the churches before the tribulation begins. Notice again what Revelation 4 and verse 1 says. Again, pay attention again to the sequential language. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. After the church is done, other things are going to happen. Verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit. There's another example of John reminding his audience that he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he writes these things. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he, was, uh, he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 elders. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and beyond. In other words, this new Jerusalem has all of the attributes of this place in heaven that John was, has already described to us in chapter 4. Now that place is coming down out of heaven to uh, the new heaven and the er- new earth, a place where we will be uh, living with God for eternity. And it's interesting that John or it's not interesting, it's very telling that John is taken to heaven to describe the events of the tribulation and that he's in the spirit, he reminds us, so that we can understand that these are the inspired words of God that are being laid out for us. We we disregard them uh, to our own 
peril, spiritually speaking. And, and not, that's not overstating it. And so when scholars tell us, oh, this stuff happened in the past, you don't have to worry about it, uh, you should be, in fact, more concerned with climate change and saving the world than Jesus coming again and having to face judgment. I mean, come on. That's rather dangerous. That's a rather dangerous position to take on the Bible when it very clearly states that we will stand before God in judgment. And as believers, I believe, we'll be held accountable for, for what we thought of his word. So we ought to pay attention to the details of it. And notice that it's the same as uh, the place where God is going to dwell. It is God's dwelling place, and it's coming to the earth, to the new earth, as a place where we will dwell with him, with, with him, and it's a very secure place. That's the reason why he uses this language, or the reason why God tells us that it's going to have these, uh, this great high wall and these gates. This was a very clear description to a person of the first century that this place is secure. Today, we would uh, perhaps say, oh, it's surrounded by 24-hour drone surveillance, uh, and it has Patriot missile batteries all around it. It's a very secure place for us to be. First century speak, it's got a great high wall that you can't climb over, and it has gates with guards at it all around. There are gates to make sure that nobody, any person who comes in here is meant to be here. Those who aren't meant to be here are kept out at the gate. How about that? Uh, And so this place is going to be very secure. There is great security in the Lord, both mentally and physically, and of course, spiritually, there is great safety in the Lord. That's true throughout the Bible, particularly the Psalms. Psalm 4, 8, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Psalm 16, 9, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Uh, the implication being, as I trust in the Lord. Psalm 23, of course, that is, we won't take the time to read the entire psalm, but that is a psalm dedicated to the safety, security, peace, and serenity that is found in the Lord. Our call to worship this morning, Psalm 27 in verse 4, one thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I'm not sure that David understood the, the full implication of those words. Maybe he did uh, as he is writing them, but he's giving a preview of the new Jerusalem there in those verses uh, a thousand years before Christ, 3,000 years before today. He's telling us what, the, what it's going to be like to live with the Lord forever. And that's his desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. In the secret place of his tent, he will hide me. 
He will lift me up on a rock, and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord as I dwell with him in safety and security. And that's why this new Jerusalem is said to have, or is, does have, and is described to us to have this great high wall and these gates. And notice that the gates are inscribed with names on them. This is going to give us a, an implication of the importance of uh, the nation of Israel, for one, uh, and not just because they, they, the Old Testament is about them or, or whatever. They, they are important because they are an important, uh, vital part of God's plan to rectify this fallen world that we are living, it, living in. And so on these gates, we see the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, these are... Uh, the names of the, the sons that make up the nation of Israel. And we need to understand that the nation of Israel is the first step in God's plan for correcting the, the problem of sin in this world, that God chose a specific, chose to make a specific nation from one man by the name of Abraham, through whom would come uh, not just a set of do's and don'ts and legalism and a new religion or something like that, uh, that you have to be born into a certain family to get to. No, that is not, that's not the point at all. That misses the entire point of what God is doing. His plan is to bring into the world the Savior for all of the world, not just the Jewish people, but every person. And we need to remember that uh, the reason why this is getting brought up is to show us that God is going to fulfill his promises to the world through the nation of Israel. God promised to do this through Israel, and Revelation is telling us how he's going to accomplish all of the promises that he's made to the nation of Israel. But God first chose a man named Abraham and he promised to bless the entire world through this man and his descendants. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Abram at the time, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Uh, a good idea when it comes time to uh, voting as an American. I mean, we, we're not uh, Israelites. We're Americans here. And uh, specific nations are mentioned in the Bible. You want to know uh, a, a good kind of concept to go by who to vote for, who's going to bless Israel? Who's going to be a blessing to the nation of Israel? Because our Bibles tell us that those who bless Israel will be blessed. Do you want to be blessed? I do. <laughs> I don't want to live in, in filth and degradation and uh, 
fear and all of these kinds of things. I'd rather live in a state of blessing, personally. I don't know about you. Uh, So we ought to consider uh, national candidates, anyway, their position towards the nation of Israel. And we might have a good outcome because of that, because these promises that God made to Israel are going to be fulfilled literally. God has made covenanted, unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. That's why we're reminded of that here in the book of Revelation. He is going to fulfill his promises. He's going to accomplish the things that he promised to the nation of Israel in unconditional covenants. He unconditionally promised the nation of Israel a land. He unconditionally promised them a a leader who would rule over them forever, the Bible says. This individual, this Messiah, is going to lead them forever. And he's also going to be a blessing to them. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. He mentions these uh, 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Who are these 12 tribes? He made that initial promise to Abraham, Abram at the time. Abram was married to Sarah. She had their promised child. God promised to make a nation out of Abram. That, that means he's going to have a lot of descendants. Uh, the, the very definition of a nation state a people with a common background. It's going to come through a, a child that I promised to give you. And that promised child was Isaac, born miraculously to Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Isaac had a wife. Her name was Rachel. They had a son named Jacob. The promises came to the nation of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, And Jacob, false religions will tell you that, oh yeah, Abraham, he was a great guy. Uh, And in fact, uh, but the promises didn't go through Isaac. They came through Ishmael. Other false religions will tell you, oh yeah, Abraham and Isaac, they're they're really good. Jacob, no, we hate those people and all his descendants. The promises came through Esau, not Jacob. You got it wrong. Well, the Bible tells us that the promises come through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, uh, and he had four wives in order to have those 12 sons, or two wives and uh, two handmaids to have the 12 sons. And this is kind of an interesting slide that we have here. The numbers represent the the birth order of the children, and Jacob, the two wives are Leah and Rachel, if you remember, and their handmaids are Zilpah and Bilhah, and they have this number of children. Uh, the, the, I guess, the wife that comes in first place or the main wife is uh, uh, Rachel, and she has Joseph and Benjamin, and they're kind of the, the, the favored sons, if you will, Joseph was so good that he receives kind of a double blessing. And when we see the 12 tribes listed and those uh, sons who receive a land grant, if you will, 
in the land, they're actually the two sons of Joseph. You don't see on your maps and charts in your Bible, Joseph's portion of the land. You see Manasseh and Ephraim. And uh, this isn't a study of all the reasons for that. It's not a study of, well, which ones are going to be on there? Which of the 12 names are actually going to be on the gates? Because every time we see the land apportioned, it's a different list. Uh, not every time, but many times when we see the 12 sons listed, they're different. Uh, if I were a, I'll say, a guessing person, <laughs> I'd say it's the 12 sons that we see listed here are going to be the ones who are inscribed uh, on the gates. But God is going to, through uh, those 12 sons, the promise of the Bible is that he makes a great nation through which we are going to receive things like the Messiah, for one, the Bible, a knowledge of who the God of the universe is, and uh, how we should respect him and understand who he is. Uh, this is the vehicle that God is going to use to make those things happen. And he's also promised to bring a kingdom to the earth through these people and through this Messiah. And he does it with these unconditional covenants of a land, a seed, and a blessing the land covenant laid out in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. God will give this land to the nation of Israel in spite of their sin, in spite of their rejection of him. They will have the land. It is unconditionally promised to them. In Deuteronomy uh, 29 and 30, Genesis 17, over and over and over, God promises to give the land to the nation of Israel. He also promised to give them a king to rule over them forever, and he will be a descendant of David. That's why the Gospels make uh, a big deal, at least two of the Gospels, tracing the lineage of Je Jesus to show that he is the son of David. He's qualified to be this king of the nation of Israel through both his mother and his father. As a matter of fact, he's qualified to be this king. And then he proves that he is the king through his miracles and ultimately through rising again from the dead to show that he can be a king forever over the house of the Lord as is promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then finally, this king or this kingdom, you have to have a place for your kingdom. You have to have a ruler of your kingdom and you have to have people in your kingdom. God promises to do that for the nation of Israel as well through the new covenant, Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34, that God is going to save these people from their sins. He, he promises to do that for them. And there's you know, the big discussion we could have about this new covenant and how the church is kind of read into the new covenant, included in the new covenant, because the blessing of this is so infinite and eternal. I see it as the blessing spilling over the top of the cup of the new covenant that we just celebrated this morning 
so much so that we as Gentile people can participate in it and gain the benefits of this new covenant and enjoy eternal life with God uh, in the new Jerusalem that's being described here. So there are gates on this on the wall of this new Jerusalem. They will have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel because Israel is very important to God's plan for the world. And next time, when we come back to the book of Revelation, we're going to see the gemstones, the second, kind of the second step in God's plan for making a way for people to be made right with him. And that is uh, going to be no surprise to you to learn that it is the church. And that is the reason why the names of the apostles are written upon the foundation stones of the wall. But we will see that next time. So uh, God's chosen people, God has a desire for people to dwell with him forever. It will be in a glorious place, so much so that the, that the place itself uh, emanates the glory of God because that's where he lives and will live forever. And God has a two-step program, if you will, for people to be included in this place with him. And it's through the nation of Israel and through the church. And we'll see more about that next time. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation that so clearly describes uh, so many of the questions that we may have about the world and about how to be right with you and how our sin problem can be dealt with. We can see all around us, even uh, from within uh, Christendom, your word is being attacked. And that should not surprise us. Paul told the, the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 that uh, from among you, wolves are going to come in sheep's clothing and try to deceive you about the truth of God and the truth of Christ found in his word. I pray that we would be stayed upon your word, this word of grace that can, that can save our souls and can conform us to your image. I just pray that we would be uh, completely stayed upon it as a rock in a time of distress, in a time of storm. And, it, and I just pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds and our thinking and encourage us as we go uh, through these dark times in which we are living and just help us to be even more faithful to you. As the, the pressure increases around us, I pray that we would uh, be more steadfast to you and to the truth of your word. And we just thank you and praise you for all that you have done for us. And pray that you would go with us in this week to come, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.